Hello and welcome to the Freedom Project podcast, where we feature interviews with guests, students, speakers, and faculty affiliated with the Freedom Project at Wellesley College. You can learn more about the Freedom Project and the upcoming events on the web at new.wellesley.edu forward slash Freedom Project. Hello and welcome to our listeners. I'm so excited and really thrilled uh, to have this conversation with Bradley Campbell, um, professor of sociology at Cal State Los Angeles, who is visiting Wellesley College, giving a talk uh, later today. Um, but uh, I'm happy to have this opportunity to have more of an in-depth chat about uh, Professor Campbell's intellectual history, uh, his, uh, you know, research and uh, and some of the ways in which uh, the, his most recent work on uh, victimhood culture has affected uh, his um, life as a teacher, as a scholar. So Bradley, uh, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. It's uh, good to be here. Yeah, I appreciate you making this, this long track. So um, you're, you're an expert. I, I was thinking of framing it. You're sort of an expert on sociology of conflict, both the sort of the large scale, the, the genocide, you know, you've written on genocide, uh, and then you've, you've, you've switched to sort of micro, and there's a sort of micro, the macro violence of genocide, right. and then now, you, now you're working on a sort of a micro, um, in a way, micro uh, aggressions or micro conflict uh, on university campuses, among other, among other places. Um, I'd be curious if you could maybe begin by um, talking about your intellectual history, how you uh, got to, to do this work, uh, what led you to want to become a sociologist, um, you know, maybe something in your childhood or, or upbringing. Um, I uh, first got interested in sociology as an undergraduate, and I, I hadn't started out as a, as a sociology major. I was an accounting major, and oh, okay. I, uh, yeah. you know, sort of sort of thinking at the time just more practically, what about you know? I just go to college and get uh, this. Uh, I, I found that I uh, I liked all my classes, like um, you know, sociology, psychology, history, economics, all, all all these those kinds of classes, and I didn't like any of the business classes for my major. Really? I'm just kind of going through them, so. Uh, after my my second year of college, uh, and this was at, at Lee University in, in Cleveland, Tennessee, and I just I started thinking about changing my major, and mm -hmm. I didn't really have a, a big plan then. It was just sort of, oh, will it be history or psychology or, and and I had taken a sociology course, and I liked the sociology faculty there, and also it's kind of it just seemed like. Sociologists were were interested in a lot of the things I was interested in. It was it was very broad in terms of of what you could study, whether it was um, interactions between people at a micro level or big so social institutions and things like that. So I ended up going into sociology, um, not really with a, with a big plan, but uh -huh. then and then uh, went to Clemson University for a, for a master's uh, degree in, in applied sociology, thinking that I would, would do something. I'd learn, learn statistics and things like that mm -hmm. and got more into it um, and uh, uh, it, it, uh, into so social theory and, and that sort of thing and decided to go on to, to a PhD program at, at the University of Virginia. And so... Um, it was so there was where I really started getting into moral conflict and, mm -hmm. and thinking about uh, about that. I uh, took a class my my first year in grads in in the PhD program 
with Donald Black, uh, who has done work in the sociology of law and, and in conflict more broadly, um, the behavior of law from from uh, 1976 is is it probably is is most uh, well known work and uh, so uh, Black had had been working for a long time in uh, legal sociology but then broadening it to the study of of conflict of, of the handling of conflict more broadly so he actually. You know, he had actually gotten a start in grad school working with with Albert uh, Reese, uh, doing a, a large project on police and riding in the backs of police cars and looking at at how police would would handle the conflicts they they came uh, um, across. So they uh, didn't always make an arrest, uh, you know, even if there was a crime, and they they were trying to understand well, what factors led to it. It wasn't just legal factors or the or the the facts of the case, the legal facts of the case, it had to do with people's social status, with their, with the relationships between the parties involved, and things like that. So Black began systematically to try to explain the uh, law, to explain when people would use law in their conflicts, when they would appeal to the police or to use the courts, mm-hmm. what the police or the courts would then do. Uh, and so he um, had developed um, a, a theory uh you know, sort of a broad theory intended to explain law across human societies and in, in every society. So one of the propositions, you know, the first day of class, he wrote wrote on the board, law varies directly with relational distance. And, uh, you know, and, and he explained that this applies to uh, law everywhere in every society. So the more uh, distance, like, so relational distance has to do with people's level of interaction with one another. So if uh, you're a stranger to someone, you're more distant than if you're a friend. And so law varies directly with relational distance, just meant more law in conflicts between people who are more distant. So if you assaulted a stranger, you'd be, the person assault, you know, assaulted would be more likely to call the police than if they were assaulted by a friend. And then the police would be more likely to make an arrest in a stranger assault. Mm. And this would apply to killings and all kinds of other offenses to hold the offense constant. And the more distance between the two parties, between uh, the victim and the offender, the more law. Um, so people are punished more severely for um, killing strangers than for, for killing people they know, um, more likely to get the death penalty and so on. And this applied across societies, and it even explained why there wasn't law in the simplest societies where everyone was very intimate with one another. Mm-hmm. And so this was, uh, at the time, I felt, uh, you know, just kind of amazing. It was, uh, it was uh, it, 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 it ambitious in a way that m- a lot of sociology wasn't at the time yeah. uh, in, in trying to look you know, broadly at patterns across societies. And so... I uh, became interested in Black's work, and he had extended it beyond law to look at what he called social control. Um, and he uses social c- control in a very specific sense, c- kind of related to way, the way others had used it. But it's any reaction to conflict. So if you have a grievance with someone, any way you handle it would be social control. That could be law. Law is governmental social control. Mm-hmm. But it could also be violence, like an assault itself or a homicide itself is normally an act of social control, responding to what someone sees as deviant behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it could be violence. It could be avoidance, cutting off a relationship with someone. It could be uh, negotiation and all kinds of other things, the way people handle conflict. So anytime you have a, a grievance, whether it's some small matter like somebody talking too loud on, on the bus or a, a big matter like uh, like a, a, a homicide, 
Um, how it's responded to is social control, and that could be just a disapproving glance. It could mm. be uh, it could be an, an illegal execution, all kinds of, of things. So this was a, a broad um, way of looking at at human uh, behavior, at human uh, at at, uh, at at the moral life of people, the conflict and social control, and so. I was interested in Black's approach and in in the subject in conflict and social control. And uh, what I ended up doing for my dissertation was uh, looking at was looking to look at, at genocide. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was trying to trying to uh, apply it to. I was I was always interested in kind of big subjects, and and uh, and I and I had mm-hmm. been interested in the Holocaust and and those kinds of things. And it, it seemed that. There, um, there had been at the time like more and more sociology of genocide. For a long time, sociologists had kind of neglected the subject. They had started to look more more at it, look at it more. But I, um, uh, but I thought it, you know that using this approach, Black's approach in in uh, explaining social control could be applied to this subject, and 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 I. Um, ended up doing that, and that was my my first book, uh, the Geometry of Genocide. A study in pure sociology. Pure sociology is what what Black calls his his theoretical approach. Right. Just just maybe briefly, what is um, pure sociology? Is there a way to explain that in the relatively brief terms, or is yeah. it just one of those things that you have to wrestle with for a few years to really it's um, grasp it? It's Black's so Donald Black's strategy of explanation. So a strategy of explanation. You could also call it a, a paradigm. Uh, is a way of, of doing theory. So it's not a, a theory in itself. It's it's the, the overall theoretical strategy. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it's like conflict theory or um, or functionalism. Mm-hmm. So conflict theory in sociology is is a way of looking at social life where you're looking at uh, at domination, like you're assuming that. Social life is a is a struggle for domination, usually between groups, and and there are oppressor groups that um, that went out uh, against against the oppressed, and and that social life is, is set up that way, and you're interpreting things in, in that sense. Or that's a dominant yeah. school. So, would you say that's yeah. sort of a dominant way of looking at conflict in sociology? Today? Yes, yeah. So, uh, probably the dominant way of looking at in conflict. I don't think conflict theory isn't. Dominant, it, 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 well, it, it's you know, growing more so, but it's not that kind mm-hmm. of the, it's not the strategy that that most sociologists are using. Um, the, the, a lot of them aren't very self-conscious about about the right. their explanatory strategy either. But but conflict theory is one example of an explanatory strategy, or um, or or functionalism, where you're looking at how the behavior um, contributes to the needs of society. Uh, so these are. And there are, there are others, um, but Black then developed what he called pure sociology, which explains behavior with its social structure. So if conflict theory, um, the way Black puts it is conflict theory explains human behavior as a struggle for domination or, um, you know, th- there are other kinds of strategies. The pure sociology explains behavior um, with its social structure. And stru- social structure for, for Black just means that you know, it's it's the idea is that any behavior has a social structure, which includes the identities of the people involved, the social identities. Mm-hmm. So this would um, 
the um, the social characteristics, we should say, of the, of the people involved. So their um, their status. So this could be uh, their wealth. So if two people are say in a conversation then the conversation has a social structure. It might be a conversation between two high-status people or between two low-status people or between a high-status and a low-status mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. And status could be differences in wealth. It could be differences in integration into society. It could be differences um, in um, kind of moral status, the black calls respectability, uh, or other kinds of status. And then also it inc- it, it, uh, social structure has to do with their relationships to one another, with their social distance from mm-hmm. one another. And I mentioned relational distance is right. one kind. Are they uh, relationally closer, like intimate, or are they more distant? They, they're strangers. Mm-hmm. Um, so you look at those. So a conversation could be between intimates or strangers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, conversation between people, two people who just met, it's likely to be different than a conversation between people who are intimate, a conversation between and uh, you know, an, an employee and her boss is likely to be different than between uh, two employees at the same level. Right. So any kind of behavior like that, whether it's a conversation or something else, has a social structure and that, in, that partly explains the behavior. And so Black had, you know, so the idea is that you could apply this approach to explaining any kind of behavior. Black has looked mainly at conflict and social control. And the idea there was that you explain the handling of a conflict with the social structure of of the conflict itself. So as, you know, whether that's uh, a homicide and you're looking at how it's handled and, and, and part of the social structure is whether the offender and victim are close to one another, distant, whether they're whether one of them is high, whether the victim is high in status or mm-hmm. the offender. Um, so those kinds of things, differences in social status, uh, in social distance, matter for how the conflict gets handled. So that's kind of the, the gist of it, that, that pure sociology, and the reason Black calls it pure sociology is that it's intended to be sociology without psychology. So uh, it's mm-hmm. kind of, uh, or, without, or, or without biology or other kinds of things, right. but it's kind of distilling it to like you know the the basics of of social uh, social life uh, you know um, relationships between people differences in status mm-hmm. and using that to explain the behavior. So if you t- if you, if you take that approach to this really extreme version of social conflict and genocidal violence, um, you know what, what was the insight that you that you gleaned there? What was what was the kind of the the key finding or the key insight from that work for you? Um, so first of all, is just the idea. Uh, this, this isn't uh, the the theory, but just the the starting point is that genocide is a form of social control. So um, that's that's one way to approach it, which isn't always the way it's, uh, it's approached. So a lot of the work on genocide talks about genocide as evil, and obviously I I think it's evil. It's that, that's a, but that's a moral evaluation of it, mm-hmm. um, and if you're if you're trying to explain evil, the problem always ends up that you're you're putting all evil behavior into the same category. The um, the person engaging in behavior we label as evil doesn't necessarily think of it as evil, and so it, it may make more sense to um, to explain evil what what you know we would would label as as you know very immoral behavior. Um, it might make more sense to explain it um, in non-moralistic terms. Uh, to 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 start with the idea, you know, 
what what's the context in which genocide or or some or other acts of violence uh, what's the context in which it's occurring and genocide like most violence not all violence is social control. It's a response to behavior that the perpetrators of the violence think of as evil. So the perpetrators of genocide don't necessarily think of themselves as doing evil as if they're, you know, kind of cartoon villains or, or something. They think of themselves as as uh, meeting out punishment to those who deserve it or as protecting their own people right. or, or whatever. They, they, they are responding to what they see as deviant behavior um, uh, on the part of members of the ethnic group they're targeting. And so to understand it, so that means that it can be understood from this framework that Black developed in, in explaining social control with the structure of the conflict. So then the idea is, what's the structure that leads to genocide as opposed to other ways of handling conflicts, like ethnic conflicts? And um, so one aspect of that is that Genocide's more likely when people are socially distant from one another and when they're unequal. So the perpetrators of genocide are going to have, genocide is a kind of one-sided violence in the way, the way that I look at it, so distinct from warfare. Mm -hmm. You could have total warfare with two groups trying to exterminate one another, but what I'm thinking of is, as genocide is more, more one-directional. And so there's... Um, a difference in power between between the two groups. So, so the, the perpetrators are going to be uh, more organized, have more military power, uh, and so on. And then, um, so there's those status differences and also a so a social distance. Um, there's also the matter of what leads to the genocide in the first place. Right. So the conflicts that, that lead to genocide. And um, so this is also... Uh, work draw, drawn from work that, that Donald Black has done, more recent work. So uh, in a 2011 book called Moral Time, Black offers a, a, a theory of conflict. So this was, is not about, as much about how conflicts are handled, but about why people have conflicts in the first place. Mm -hmm. Why is a behavior considered deviant? And his idea that it is that um, is that conflict is caused by social changes. And these are you know, drawing from Black's theory, it's changes in intimacy, equality, and diversity. Mm -hmm. So this could be an increase or decrease in any of those. An increase or decrease in intimacy causes conflict or equality or diversity. And so any kind of deviant behavior, behavior somebody labels as deviant or wrong, is... Um, is a social change of some kind, or, or it's it's there. It's too much or too little intimacy, equality, or diversity. Somebody rises in status. Somebody falls. Uh, something causes somebody to fall in status. Um, so, uh, so or like relationships. Uh, um, so, um, an increase in intimacy might be, or, or too much intimacy might be, you know, people standing too close to you, somebody mm -hmm. touching you when you don't want to, or, or an extreme example would be rape, is a kind of unwanted intimacy. Um, or um, too little intimacy would be um, somebody abandoning a spouse, abandoning their child, so uh, um, not, not talking enough to, to friends. And mm -hmm. so uh, these are the things that cause conflict, but depending on the social structure that's there, uh, um, different things cause more more conflict or or less. So in close, very close relationships, it's going to be what Black calls under intimacy or too little intimacy mm. or decreases in intimacy that cause conflict more mm. than too much. For, um, 
And, and uh, so that's kind of the, the principle. So I, I was in looking at what causes genocide, what, what, are, what causes the conflicts, what kinds of conflicts lead to them. Um, it seems to be mainly that it is what, you know, what Black calls over-diversity and under-stratification. So that would be an increase of diversity, so which can be two ethnic groups coming into contact for the first time. So as when, when European settlers went into Australia or into the Americas, um, a vast increase in, in diversity in people's lives. Um, and it can, a much lesser degree of over-diversity is ethnic groups living alongside one another for a longer time they're still on a daily basis coming into contact with one another, increasing mm-hmm. diversity in their lives. That's a smaller amount. Under stratification is uh, a decrease or an attempt to decrease stratification. So when there's a lot of inequality in an environment um, and the lower, a lower status ethnic group or lower status person tries to raise their status, that's often considered deviant mm-hmm. in some way. And this could be being disrespectful to somebody who's, you know, a higher status, or it could be a rebellion, a, a civil war. Uh, those kinds of things are, are under stratification. They, they're attempts to, to decrease the stratification that's there. Mm-hmm. And so you see genocide as reacting to those kinds of things. It's, it's, uh, it can be, um, over diversity um, or under stratification. It's usually some combination of, of those. So, like in California in um, the 1850s, in, in the Round Valley of Northern California, there was a group, uh, the Yuki, the Yuki Indians, who were almost completely exterminated by white cattle ranchers in the area. And uh, what would happen is the ranchers came in, they took land, they fenced it off and things like that, used it for cattle ranching. But it was the, it was, it was the Yuki's land. It was where they were hunter-gatherers. They had been right. using the valley. Uh, when the, the Indians would then uh, kill cattle, kill horses, uh, the whites would respond by getting a group together and going out into the mountains and, and killing Indians. So they might go out and kill 40 or 50 50 people in response. So in that case, there's this vast amount of what, what Black calls over-diversity, an increase in diversity with uh, where um, the Yuki and the, the white settlers came into contact with the, for the first time. And then there is under-stratification, which is the theft or the, the killing mm-hmm. of the cattle. It's a, it's a, it's a small amount of of, of under stratification, a small attempt to decrease the take the wealth of, of the higher status people uh, mm. here, um, but a, a great amount of of, of over diversity and and that leads then to conflict and genocide. Or in the bigger cases, in in something like uh, the Rwandan genocide, the, those the groups there, the Hutu and, and Tutsi, had lived alongside each other for a long time. So the amount of over-diversity is much less, but there's a great amount of, of what Black calling under-stratification. There's a civil war going on with a, a Tutsi army coming in from Uganda right. uh, attempting to overthrow the, the, the Hutu government. So uh, again, trying to this group that had been for several decades in a lower position in society, kept out of political power, was now trying to rise. And so that was, uh, you know, th- those those kinds of, of things are, are what 
what what uh, what led to that genocide. So I saw like the, the same kinds of conflicts tended to lead to genocide, and they lead to genocide under uh, when there's a certain kind of social structure in place. That's, that's really fascinating. It sounds like you have a, a real um, uh, sort of penchant for using kind of this this sort of dispassionate social analysis and apply it to rather um, emotionally charged subject, obviously, um, which which is which is fascinating, and I think. Uh, you know, really, really. Uh, I mean, uh, re reading your work on on this, and then, you know, obviously a very, very different uh, context. Uh, you know, really opened my eyes. I've 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 read a few. Uh, there's been several books, you know, on um, whatever you want to call it, the, the modern sort of campus culture, political culture around, um, um, well, what you call victimhood culture. Um, I found I found your uh, and your co-authors uh, Jason Manning's analysis really really uh, eye-opening. Um, but so then so you finished this 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 work and and I'm just curious how um, how you become interested in this this next project. Um, I know there's been there was a, uh, some articles that really garnered a lot of attention. I would be really curious to hear what's it like to write an academic article and have it be uh, <laughs> kind of uh, go viral in the in the broader uh, kind of uh, broader reading public. Um, what was that? Uh, what was that transition? Or how did you come up uh, to this to this new area of research? Yeah, we um, we came up upon it kind of. Um, you know, we we didn't plan it out. It, right. it was more kind of we started talking about things, ended up doing this as as a kind of a side project. Right. But it was drawn from our work uh, on, on conflict. So um, Jason Manning, my my co-author, is a sociology professor at West Virginia University, um, and he and I had gone to to graduate school together. He was also um, had had worked with Donald Black, and he was doing work on suicide. And I, you know, I had done work on, on genocide, so they're very different subjects from right. from this one. But again, that the, the thing that unites all of these is that we were looking at conflict and how it's handled. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, and also that we, you know, we had both been kind of interested more in violence and taught courses on violence. So one of the things uh, you know you often talk about it in the study of violence is is moral cultures, like honor culture, and how it relates mm -hmm. to violence, and so. We started seeing uh, these things happening on campus and these campus conflicts and trying to just just talking about them and trying to understand them and you know thinking about the the terms people had used previously and talking about moral cultures a lot of times in the context of violence but it's broader than that and we thought well this this is a, a kind of a new moral culture or a different one so we uh, one thing. Um, I think when we first heard the term microaggression, it, it was in 2013, mm -hmm. and we had uh, we had been talking about some stuff that was going on at Oberlin College, right. and there had been some racist graffiti on campus, and there was uh, uh, and, and during this time, and, and and so there was a lot of kind of anxiety about that. What's what's happening? Right. Uh, it, it turned out I think there were there were two students who were kind of pranksters or something and trying to get a rise out, out of people. Um, but it, it wasn't really known at the time who was responsible for the graffiti and things like that. But during the midst of all that, 
somebody reported seeing a Ku Klux Klansman on campus. Mm. And if you know anything about Oberlin College, it's a very <laughs> left-wing, very progressive so place. And uh, so we were kind of interested, well, what's going on here? It seemed unlikely to us from the beginning that there was a Klansman on campus, and it, and it turned out it was a mistake. Somebody had seen a student wrapped in a blanket uh, and and thought it was a Ku Klux Klansman and reported yeah. it. Classes were, were canceled o- wow. over this. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what was leading to this kind of, this fear at, at a very progressive place that it was kind of this, this hotbed of, of racism, that there was a, you know, like a secret chapter of the Ku Klux Klan or whatever the, the idea was. Um, and we were, we were thinking about it in terms of um, something uh, that uh, sociologist Emile Durkheim had, had, had written. Uh, so uh, Durkheim was a French sociologist writing in the late, late 1800s. And he talked about, um, he, he's, he's famous for saying that even in a society of saints, there still would be sinners. So the idea was that there would always be behavior that someone sees as deviant. So you can't eliminate conflict or eliminate deviant behavior. So the idea, he said, you know, imagine a a perfect society, a society of saints. Well, some would be less perfect, less saintly than others. Mm. And then they would, uh, you know, draw the ire of the more saintly people just as others do. So those things that were minor offenses, you know, kind of peccadilloes in, 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 in any other environment would be major offenses among the saints. Now, whether that's right or wrong, kind of generally... It was just interesting to us to think about it in these terms that, uh, you know, do you have, you know, sort of the, not, you know, not an actual society of saints, but a society of people who are, you know, a community of people who are, are very uh, progressive, very anti-racist and, and concerned with, with equality, um, with, with diversity. Is it the case that there, uh, you know, that there becomes kind of uh, a greater fear about those things, such that so that even kind of something minor, like seeing someone in a, in a bathrobe and, and or, or, uh, or a blanket wrapped around them, and, and assuming immediately that it's a, a Ku Klux Klansman, you know, is it is it the case that that uh, the lack of the offenses, the mm-hmm. lack of m- more serious racism, things like that, uh, mm-hmm. kind of exacerbates the, the reaction to smaller things? And so we were talk- thinking about this. Um, and then we came across the the Oberlin microaggressions website. So I heard about that somehow. And uh, mm-hmm. so that was we'd never heard of a microaggression. The term has been been around since since the 1980s. Um, but the idea is that a microaggression is a small offense, like a slight, a, an insult, and it might even be unintentional. That um, that furthers the oppression of marginalized groups. So. Examples that are have been given sometimes are like asking. So, if a, a white person asks an Asian person where they're from, um, this can be taken as um, you don't belong here, right? So, it, even if the person doesn't intend it that way, it's a microaggression. And the idea is that those microaggressions add up so that they're important. They're part of what contributes to people's oppression, and so they would need to be dealt with. So, on the Oberlin microaggressions website, people would list out microaggressions that had happened to them. Uh, one student said uh, that she was in uh, in the gym and she overheard a professor saying that she was glad uh, both she and her husband had blue eyes so their children would have blue eyes. And the, the student then commented, 
I don't want casual racism from my professors. Mm. So this was interpreted, this, this statement about blue eyes is interpreted, first of all, as, as racism and then as a microaggression that simply overhearing, oh, overhearing. can can, uh, can cause harm. Yeah. Overhearing can, can cause harm to you. And so this seemed like exactly what we were saying, right? The idea, or what Durkheim was saying, in a society of saints, there would still be sinners, minor offenses would then become major ones. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea that, they're, I mean, they're even called microaggressions because they're small, but they're considered very important. And, you know, kind of as you were talking about, like the, the difference between something like a genocide is, is mm -hmm. enormous, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so a genocide is, an, you know, macro, macro right. uh, aggression, and it's, it's uh, you know, you know, something directed against uh, against an ethnic group, massive of kill, uh, killing and stuff. But the idea here was that even these small things, not even not even uh, a racial slur, right? But just um, a, a statement in, in you know that might be well intended that that ends up conveying this meaning. So we just we started thinking more about this and. We, uh, we wrote an article called Microaggression and Moral Cultures. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we were drawing from Donald Black's work as we had uh, on conflict and social control as we had before. But we also, um, in the course of that, were thinking about, about different kinds of moral cultures. So as I was saying, in, in the study of violence, people often talk about honor cultures and how honor leads to violence. And so... Um, in the pre-Civil War American South, for instance, men might fight duels with one another um, over insults. And so this is an environment where people were very sensitive to slight. So, you know, uh, you, you, have to, you have to defend your honor. You have, if you're slighted, you, um, you, you, might, uh, you know, might challenge someone to a duel. Um, a duel is just one manifestation of an honor culture, but it's a, it's a good it's a good one as an illustration right. because it seems incomprehensible to people outside the culture. Like, why would if somebody if you call somebody a coward or, or, or even like even another kind of offense? Say you call somebody dishonest, so it's not even mm -hmm. calling them a coward. You call somebody dishonest. You say they're a liar, and they challenge you to a duel. And then you you shoot guns at each other. How does that show that they're not a liar, right? Obviously, it doesn't, but it shows they have courage. And in an honor culture, um, it's this courage, this uh, it, it's physical bravery and your reputation right. for it that's that's important. And so you get an environment where people are very sensitive to slight and also responding aggressively to it. I, I do think it's so. I was the the the. Um the dual stuff and the honor culture is so fascinating and this, the way, mm -hmm. and I'm gonna uh, read a, just a paragraph from a book, I think there's a nice one that summarizes the argument neatly and um, succinctly. Um, but there's a step in the, in the, in the honor culture and the, the whole dual business is that you demand, uh, often you demand an apology, you demand a public recantation of the uh, stated stated claim. And it's interesting that, that there's a lot of the demand for public uh, apology for a public, uh, uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, public experience of being, of admitting one's, you know, shortcomings or, or one's fault of it, perhaps uh, admitting, um, you know, uh, unconsciously held bias or misunderstanding about certain things. It kind of that that yeah. that um, that part of the honor honor culture um, uh, ritual, I feel like, is. 
very much present in what you described in the victimhood culture. Yeah. Um, I don't know. But that was one of the things we were, we were thinking about, like, so what is similar about about the new culture, the, the culture of the campus activists right. and stuff? And the, it, in my moral culture, it's just the, the framework, the moral framework that they're using. Um, and so we see the sensitivity to slight. Of course, it's about different kinds of slights. It's about things said to further op- oppression. Right. It might be different than, than the uh, slights that are, are uh, handled with violence in an honor culture. But of course, they're not handled with violence. Um, so the culture that people had talked about as having replaced honor culture was dignity culture. So the idea is that everybody has equal worth. That's, that's dignity, regardless of what you've done. And so in dignity cultures, people are, are told to ignore slights. And if, if there's a serious offense against you, violence and things like that, you go to the police, you go to the courts. So in honor culture, it's very different. You're, you're sensitive to slight and you handle conflicts yourself because you want to portray that you can handle your conflicts. In a dignity culture, you can appeal to third parties, but you do that for big offenses rather than small things, which you're told to brush off. So we saw like with, with the microaggression thing and then other concepts like safe spaces and, and right. those kinds of things, that the, in, the, in the new culture, there was in the new culture there was sensitivity to slight like in an honor culture but it they they weren't uh handling it with violence or or portraying themselves as um as as strong and capable uh, of handling their own conflicts they were appealing to third parties uh either for support or sometimes for intervention often right. appealing to uh, campus administrators and others so it had this kind of combination where it wasn't really honor or dignity culture and so we thought you know something new is going on right no i, I just it is a, it, it's really a, a a theory of what's going on that 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 i feel it's so powerful and it really explained what, what's happening a lot because you know i've done a few of these interviews i was involved in this project i've gone to a lot of talks i've read a lot of the, a lot of the writing on the subject and i i have to say i've been often just confused about what's going on and uh, and skeptical that it was really I would often have conversations with visitors or folks who are working in this area and I, I often thought I often asked like, you know, is, this, is this really a big deal like I mean I, yes there's sort of these uh, flashes of extreme kind of sensitivity behavior I mean we all know the examples that have been publicized um, but increasingly I've come to understand that it, there's there's this other nefarious um, element to it, which is not so much the flashes of violence at Middlebury or kind of a, a public yelling match in a, at Yale, you know, whatever. The, many of these examples like this, uh, but the, uh, the 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 silencing of of um, free speech or of um, you know expression of difference of opinions in the classrooms, in my own classrooms, I see it all the time, and that part of it is not often talked about, but I think it's very. Um, uh, that, that's been a, a consequence of the emergence of this culture on campus. But I wanted to read, I don't know if you uh, want to, I hope you do want to add on to it, but I thought there was this three or four sentences. I love one in the book, you can kind of get the grasp of that. This is on page 251 of your book, where you summarize the arguments. A combination of diversity and equality make ethnic slurs and other intergroup offenses extremely deviant. Uh, the presence and power of social superiors make a reliance on third parties increasingly attractive. Combined with a shortage of strong ties and the surfeit of weak ones, it makes public complaint increasingly likely. The combination of all three conditions lead to complaints of oppression and condemnation of privilege, 
once initiated, the ideals and practices of victimhood culture themselves alter social conditions, setting in plain dynamics that are likely to cause the moral system to in intensify and spread. And I, I read that and I highlighted it and I thought uh, that that really describes this um, you know, 2010s on, on campuses uh, mm. in, in a lot of ways. Um, I wanted to ask you something that came up to me, and I, and I think in these conversations um, about privilege and um, victimhood and who gets to speak and, and who are the powerful one, and then this whole framework of a struggle for power, there's always this language of power, domination, and all this. I, I think there's a genuine confusion about who has the power. <laughs> yeah. Um, as a sociologist and studying all these different societies, these different environments, how can we tell who, who, which group is really the powerful, the higher status group? Who has the power? Yeah. Uh, so um, it's, uh, I think this is one of um, the uh, uh, kind of the unfortunate things about this, this, this framework. And so I think that this new moral culture draws from the, the the sociological framework I was talking about before it's conflict theory it's a form form of conflict mm -hmm. theory Marxism was a, a, an early well, the, the first uh, uh, conflict theory um, where you're seeing uh, you're analyzing things as a struggle between between an oppressed group and a victim group and with Marx that's that's the bourgeoisie and the proletariat it's it's class struggle and kind of the the modern activists have have gone beyond that to, so that you know, so it's uh, it's the it's the same kind of framework, but applied to first they they first people applied it to other kinds of of identities. So it would be right. like fem uh, like a lot of feminist theory looked like Marxism, but with um, both men and women. Um, and 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 now it's more that you're looking at all these identities, whether it's it's uh, the idea that um, whites oppress people of of color or. Um, straight suppress uh, LGBT people, or you know, so and um, so way beyond class, and you're looking at at you're, you're understanding even like minor interactions. That's what microaggression is as furthering this oppression. Uh, that's that's a kind of framework that's used, and that that's the thing. It's a framework. It's a it's the they you start with certain assumptions. It's um, and conflict theory generally has not produced uh, testable and valid explanations of, of yeah. human behavior it's a it's really um, it usually acts more as a, as a lens through uh, of looking at things it's just it's a kind of reinterpretation of, of, of behaviors it's not um, it, it doesn't yield uh, tend to yield good explanations and I think if you're as a sociologist trying to understand power and inequality, it's not the best framework to use, even if you're, even if you, even if you start with the idea that there's there's conflict and oppression and and relationships. Much of it is situational. It's not. Um, so the the way that the the activist would look at it is that uh, there is systematic oppression, and that um, you know, and and that's uh, you're looking at. Where a pattern of things is then mistaken for kind of you know an, an absolute across all interactions, mm -hmm. so it, it, it leads to these weird kind of ideas that 
for example, they'll they'll say that racism is is uh, prejudice plus power. So you can't actually be racist toward whites. They would say because whites have power. Or I even you know I even saw where someone had said. Um, you know, so in one of these campus censorship uh, controversies, they they said the the oppressed cannot censor their oppressor, which in a sense is true. But what they meant is that it's not even censorship if you're if you're directing uh-huh, right. against against the groups that uh, you think of as having having power. So that would be a good uh, answer if you're asking how do you know if somebody has power in a situation. Well, they're right, actually. If you're censoring someone's speech, you have the power. Um, You you can't do that without it. Um, But it's not in the the way that, you know, they're kind of reversing it, starting from the idea that we know who has power. And so that therefore nothing they could be doing is is censorship if they, you know, nothing the oppressed could be doing. But of course, um, you know, power and and status differences are... uh, are situational often and work differently. Mm-hmm. If 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 you get, you know, if if you're the the victim of an armed robbery, um, it may be someone who is um, lower status and disadvantaged compared to you broadly. But in that situation, they have power over you, they, yeah, physical power. Yeah. Yeah, so right. it's um, and that's how you know that's how things actually play out. It, um, it may be, you know, there are often reasons why. Um, sort of the the way that things are distributed systematically might, um, you know, might uh, help at the, at the micro level for those who are are generally in power to to yeah. win advantage. But it's not absolute. And also, of course, there the uh, you know the contemporary United States is a is a vast and diverse place. And you know who has power uh, at. Uh, at Oberlin or Wellesley may be different than who has power um, in in a corporation in the U.S., in the Supreme Court, uh, certainly, or or in politics, where uh, obviously, you know, if if college campuses are overwhelmingly, um, you know, if professors, administrators are overwhelmingly on the left and and students... um, um, uh, generally on the left, but not as as much, not as much difference. Yeah. But then, uh, you know, more so than the broader society, um, you know, that's uh, going to be something. Um, you know, that it's going to be a very different environment yeah. than, than than other places will be. Uh, so, um, yeah. So I would, you know, all those things that you know, this idea that that groups and and social environments are very different. Um, and that that power is different, and then and then from situation to situation, it's it's different, and that's the way that you would you would begin trying to understand um, power. You know, there are multiple kinds of status, um, and you know, in, including you know, in, in some situations, being um, physically more powerful than some someone will matter, and others it won't, um, and or. Uh, in some situations, being wealthier than someone matters, and others it doesn't. And, and so, um, so I, it, there was a great article um, around maybe around 2000 uh, by Randall Collins, who was a, a sociologist at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, um, and this was in, in sociological theory called, called situational stratification. I always thought this was one of the best things that's that's been written. Um, of recently about stratification, just understanding that you know you would 
look at it not just in in the broad terms uh, of you know saying that you know the wealthy have power of the poor whites uh, over blacks and things like that but looking at at specific situations at micro interactions and look and looking at how it works out there right that's really fascinating it sounds like in in your work and and the work of people in in your subfield of sociology clearly a status the stratification um is has a very important explanatory power but it's not it's not this kind of marxist political power it's it's something else right is it the status is understood as some other category like when you were studying all these different forms of genocide was it just simply looking at what these these people had political predominantly representing political power they had more mili- guns and weapons and uh, was that the way you kind of approached the status differences and um, uh, sophisticated technology in the case of these early technologies Th- those were the sort of ways in which you dis- decided who who was the higher status uh, I think from from group? blacks theory uh, I you know I would draw the idea that there are multiple kinds of status so you know Uh, multiple kinds of inequality wealth is one um, integration and differences in integration uh, differences in cultural status and and all, all kinds of things all those things matter um, and then and then organization is one uh, so that would be where kind of political power and those kinds of things would would, would come um, into play that uh, you know if uh, organization is the capacity for collective action mm-hmm. which is a kind of of, of a difference in status in blacks work on law you look at like legal conflicts say between organizations and individuals um, where organizations typically win lawsuits against individuals and individuals don't normally win them over mm-hmm. organizations which you know goes against what a lot of people might think because you you hear these stories about individuals getting these pay, big payoffs and right, stuff right. but if you look across cases the, that's not that's not, not the, case. the case and so um so that kind of status organizational status is is important so you'd look at all those things but um yeah and in in genocides that that's often often the thing that thing that matters is uh is that that kind of the capacity for collective action it's it's sometimes you know it's often the more numerous uh ethnic group targeting the um the the less numerous but which would be one kind of advantage but even if they're not more numerous they may have have political power and have have this capacity to act right well i wanted to end uh, by you know with this with this last question you 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 and your co-author write in the book about the kind of potentially self-defeating elements to the victimhood culture, how it might actually harm the advance of people and groups and agendas uh, that it perhaps wants to, uh, you know, put forth. Um, so um, could you talk a little bit about that? Um, and and also what can, uh, you know, students, faculty, or just people uh, outside of academia Uh, do in, in their in their daily lives and interactions with one another political conversations to um, mitigate some of these negative consequences um, yes uh, it's it, it's interesting that um, the effects of of this culture are you know largely not or at least we don't we, we don't uh, don't see them as 
as being what the the groups are are intending, what they're what they're actually seeking, and there are, are several reasons for this. One uh, is something that uh, uh, Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt talked about in, in their article, uh, "The Coddling of the American Mind." Later, that was uh, turned into a book. Um, they, they don't like the title apparently at all. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, they yeah they uh, yeah so they. Um, they they said in in their article they were kind of drawing um, from cognitive behavioral therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy is a uh, you know is is, is used uh, to treat depression to treat anxiety and the idea is to get people into better patterns of thinking so Social you don't therapy, right? so you don't magnify right. offenses for instance like magnify things and think they're bigger deals than they are or mind reading is often a, 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 an issue like you know th- uh, interpreting other people's you know uh, motives in the worst possible way. And, right. and so you're teaching people to avoid those patterns of thinking to reduce depression and anxiety, and there's a lot of evidence that that, that works. And uh, Lukianoff and Haidt's idea was that these new concepts, microaggressions, safe spaces, trigger warnings, were encouraging just the opposite. They were encouraging people to magnify offenses, micro things, like make, make them, like that, that's mm-hmm. a big deal and you're supposed to pay attention to it. Um, and to you know, mind read that this is what people uh, meant and catastrophize, think that the worst possible um, thing will happen from it. And they thought you're, you're essentially training people like to be depressed and, and, uh, and have anxiety. And so that's obviously not, not the intention to, to actually um, harm the people who you see as disadvantaged. So it's not just, there are other um, you know, issues, a lot of times people raise free speech issues and things like that, which I also think are very important, but it, it could, at least from the standpoint of, um, of those who are, uh, um, in, you know, uh, the standpoint of the activists and so on, they might see this as, well, you know, why do, why, why does it matter if, uh, you know, if the speaker who is actually causing oppression gets censored, right. right? And so it's you're looking at it from the standpoint of the rights of the oppressors or something, which doesn't, you know, yeah. maybe matter to them. But the thing not is that the people them. that they see as oppressed, if you're harming them, that's obviously not what they're what they're seeking. Mm-hmm. And we, um, Jason Manning and I, thought, you know, you know, I think that's generally probably true. But it's also kind of looking at it more sociological. Another effect is to um, increase conflict. So th- they're, you know, they're, uh, they're per- trying to pursue racial harmony, harmony across groups. Uh, they don't, they, you know, presumably they don't want, especially in the long term, more conflict between people. But what we thought is that dignity culture has encouraged people to uh, avoid taking offense as well as avoid giving offense. So both of those kind of help reduce conflict. You're not going to eliminate conflict. People are always going to uh, see some behaviors as offensive. People will offend one another through their beliefs and, and other kinds of things. That Some degree of that is unavoidable. But um, if you encourage people to treat other people charitably, don't, don't try to unnecessarily offend them, but also don't try, don't uh, take offense unnecessarily. Um, this is is reducing conflict. So again, it's not really the goals of the activists to uh, cause more conflict. And what would happen then? It would either 
either people might stay away from each other, like uh, and not engage with one another across uh, um, racial and other other kinds of lines, uh, uh, reduce interactions, or um, have or, or avoid certain topics and th- and things like that. So it doesn't seem that a world where there's more conflict, more racial conflict, and other kinds of, of conflict between between groups, and where those who and, and there's more depression, anxiety uh, among, yeah. among among students and activists. Uh, this is it, you know, so it's it's not just a matter of you know of, of where we're just kind of disagreeing with their goals or rejecting their morality. We think that this is you know probably not the way. Um, you're not going to have the results that, that they intend and not the way to, to go about um, increasing increasing social justice. So uh, you know, to um, so I think the you know the idea of of avoiding offense, uh, avoiding giving offense and avoiding um, taking offense still works as a, as a way to, to bring uh, Diverse people together uh, and and have interactions uh, among people who who disagree with one another, who have different backgrounds. Um, so uh, a university can be a very wonderful place in in bringing people together and giving people new experiences and things like that. Uh, and uh, whether um, and this this kind of new moral framework uh, drawn from from conflict theory and, and ending up in being this this kind of victimhood culture is uh, is is probably harming that. I think. Right. Thank you very much. I think you you in the book you you write that that diversity requires uh, tolerance and forgiveness of mistakes, errors, slights, and misunderstandings. Um, and I just hope we're all uh, take that on and and be more forgiving of uh, misunderstandings, slights, and, uh, and errors in uh, one another. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm uh, really looking forward to your talk. And uh, thank you for tuning in to the Freedom Project podcast. I'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening. To learn more about the Freedom Project, visit us on the web at new.wellesley.edu forward slash Freedom Project. Mm-hmm.